0: Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzavin and I'm here with my colleagues, Dan Seligson and Ashley Jacobs for our annual Spooky Halloween episode.
1: Yay! One of
0: my Season's favorites. Season's
2: greetings. Season's greetings.
0: For this episode, we welcome back friend of the podcast, author and occult expert, Peter Bieberga. Hi, Peter.
2: Hello,
3: hello. Really good to be back here at this beautiful time of year it's really been glorious here in new england
2: so peter let me let me start off by asking you what's new in your occult world since we last connected uh for the halloween episode we did in 2019 the greatest year of all time we thought
3: well i have actually just completed a, an anthology of, of sort of pulp fantasy and science fiction and horror stories. It will be available at the end of this year, but you can right now get a special edition hardcover of that. It's coming out from a British publisher called Strange Attractor Press, which is actually distributed by MIT Press. So I'm pretty excited to be working with both of those uh, folks on this. So
1: check the show notes, everyone, for a link. Love it. We can't wait to read it. And speaking of, last year, you set the tone for the episode by telling us a very creepy story about a goose and the angel of death. Can you help us get into the mystical mindset today with another terrifying tale?
3: Yes, indeed. So this is a story which is called in some places, The Bride of Demons. And it's about a girl in a Eastern European city, often. Uh, Frankfurt is, is where it, it takes place and she is preparing for her wedding and she does not want to wear the wedding dress of her mother she wants her own and she's become obsessed with this one particular dress and has decided she's going to use all of her money to buy this dress but her mother becomes incredibly angry and says to her which is quite a thing to say to your daughter that's about to be married go to the devil and leaves her in her room and so the girl decides you know what i'm going to go and buy this dress anyways and when she gets to the store or to the merchant who has the dress there's another woman there this beautiful just wonderfully dressed woman who is buying almost every dress in the store for herself and so the girl really again just consumed by a desire for this dress goes to her and says could I maybe would you let me buy this one particular dress this is just I've been I've been wanting this and, it, and it's so beautiful and you're beautiful and I I know that it would look great on you but this is for my wedding and the woman says you know what not only am I going to let you buy this dress I'm gonna buy it for you and I want to make this a wedding present for you. The only thing is I want you to come back to my house and, and put it on there so together we can really see how, how wonderful you're gonna look. You. So of course the girl was so overjoyed. She goes with the woman to the house and it's a really beautiful mansion and really a palace. And she takes her into this room that has all these mirrors in it and gives her the dress and it just is beautiful with gold and silver threads and she just can't believe it's even better than she had thought and she goes to the door to show you know to let the woman know she has the dress on but but the door is locked back at the girl's family there's no sign of her she hasn't come back for dinner her parents are starting to get frantic they go to the rabbi and he says you know what it's the Sabbath. We can't go looking for her. <laughs> we just need to. We need to stay put. But that night, he decides he's going to see if he can divine uh, something that's happened. So he asks in his, he asks sort of God to give him a sign in his dream, and he finds out the truth. And so immediately, the rabbi goes to the bridegroom and he says, "I found out what happened to your to your bride to be." This is a rough one, but she's been kidnapped by Lilith, and Lilith is going to make her the bride of her son, who is also the son of the King of Demons. And so the only, only you can get her back in sort of a contest of wills with the demons. So what you have to do is I'm gonna take you to this field and I'm going to make a magic circle around you and you are just going to be surrounded by demons and they're gonna taunt you and peck at you and curse you and yell at you and try to frighten you away. But you you have to hold firm. And the only thing that you can do is you have to wait for Asmodeus to appear. And when he appears, you have to say to him, you have to look him in the eyes and say, give me back my bride. Why have you taken my bride? And as Morty says, look, she was a present to me. There's nothing I can do about that. And the bridegroom says, I'm sorry. She is mine first. She is betrothed to me. You have to uh, bring her to me. Now, all the while, the demons started burying the girl in the earth. And so while the bridegroom is having this sort of you know, debate with the demon and not breaking eye contact. The rabbi and the family come and they dig her out of the earth and the dress that she was wearing is now covered in maggots and disgusting slimy things from the earth and they quickly replace it with with another garment and at that moment, the demon disappears and she is free from the curse of Lilith trying to steal her from her rightful husband.
0: First of all, I think this tells us something very important, that the real horror story is getting married. And also, don't take wedding dresses from women you don't know. Like, if you go into David's Bridal and there's some random woman you don't know, she's like, yes, I have this, hmm, I have this wedding dress. It may be Lilith, so be careful. Yes.
3: And maybe also... When there's something that seems to be of imminent danger, maybe it's okay to move forward on the Sabbath to try to figure out what's going on.
2: I immediately thought of Craigslist. I got to tell you, I thought of Craigslist.
0: What, like buying a dress off, but it's really Lilith selling her dress on Craigslist?
2: If it sounds too good to be true, don't do it exactly i thought it was a exactly. love story
1: you have to find a guy who's willing to confront a demon and just look this demon son of the most villainous female demon in the eye to get you back like that's that's a oh, man that's a nice way to look at it
2: that's the really that's the best take it's not about the hubris of women
0: no and their <sighs> need for fancy dresses
2: it's not they about suck. the danger of online commerce Peter, for the past two years, we have discussed so many different aspects of the Jewish occult with you, from golems to Lilith to angels to demons to Dybbukhs to the undead. And this year, we want to go deeper into the horror territory, monsters that have appeared in Jewish folktales and scripture. Now, Miriam and I have undertaken this daily reading of the Daf Yomi, which is a page a day of the Babylonian Talmud, And there's a recurring digression in the current tractate. There is a giant named Og who appears in the book of Numbers in Deuteronomy. First, his name is amazing, Og. I love it. Second, despite having only passing mentions in the Torah, he really is very compelling. As a baby, Og's bed, which we learn in Deuteronomy chapter 3, had to be made of iron because he kept breaking his wooden cribs. And God himself had an opinion on Og. He told Moses that while Og was a really big dude, Moses would, in all certainty, still kick his ass. So, I want more Og, not less. I wish we had an entire chapter devoted to Og in the Babylonian Talmud, but please tell me everything about this biblical giant.
3: Well, what I know about him is more generally the idea of giants existing in the first place, which is, I think, in, in the Torah, which is quite a remarkable thing. Uh, most, of, most people are familiar with the story of what are called the Nephilim. And as it, it says in Genesis, and it seems like a throwaway line, and there were giants in those days, as if, of course, there were. Now, my rabbi told me that actually, this is what the Bible was referring to about dinosaurs, The rabbi that I had helped me through my bar mitzvah was actually, um, and we talked about this before, was part of the Chabad. And so as a probably fairly in the creationist view of the world, was also trying to make sense of how you could have dinosaurs and people at the same time. And so he says, look, it's right there in the butt giants. I think that was his way of accommodating a 12-year-old's incessant questions about who still love dinosaurs. But the Bible and the, and the subsequent sort of midrash and other tales that come around this really, really are, just seem to be describing giant folk like this old. And the story is essentially, at least in Torah, that, the, that some angels come to earth and have amorous affairs with human women and these give birth, these women give birth to these giants known as Nephilim. Now, I was doing some investigating on this, and I didn't realize that there's some later commentary on this that says that one of those angels is actually Yes, indeed,
0: my BFF, Azazel.
3: (laughs) Yep, And, and that he has two sons, Hiwa and Hiwa. And there's a lot of problems with these kids. They you, you can't feed them enough, they're constantly trying to, you know, eat everything in sight. Part of what comes out of that is even though God tells these angels, please don't do this anymore, Azazel is just too into human women to stop, and he's continuing to sort of try to seduce them and to have these affairs. What I think is very interesting though about this is in a more mystical context, there is another giant which is described, and that's God. And so there is a early mystical, often referred to as, as part of a sort of Kabbalistic grouping of texts, called the Shir Koma, which was supposedly given to a rabbi by the angel Metatron as sort of this secret knowledge. And in this book, God's dimensions are described. And so I have a little bit of the way in which that one version of that. The soles of his feet fill the entire universe. Their height is 10 million parsings. From the sole of his feet to his ankle is 10 million parsecs. From his ankle to his knees is 190 million parsecs. From his thighs to his neck is 240 million parsecs. His neck, God's neck, extends 130 million parsecs. So the giant of the world is God. What's interesting, though, is this goes on and on. It says the black of his right eye is 11,500 parsings. It's so specific. Very specific. His arms are folded. His fingers on each hand are 150. Og has nothing on this giant, right? But let me just tell you one thing, which is really great, is that Metatron um, says, what I would like, he says to the rabbi, now I want you to calculate what a a parsing is, so I'm going to tell you what a parsing is. Each parsing is three miles. A mile is 10,000 cubits. Each cubit is two spans measured according to God's span." which spans the entire universe.
0: Okay, this is like the worst case scenario math word problem. But this is so funny because in that story about the Nephilim, some translations will say that they are the sons of God. and Some people say, oh, it just means angelic figures God created or whatever. But if we're saying that they themselves are descended from or made in the image of the ultimate giant then it makes sense. They themselves are giants. And one of the interesting things that happens with them is the flood in part, according to some sources, is to get rid of them, is to get rid of the Nephilim yeah. on earth. Because uh, God was like, oh, wait, no, this is not working out. This is a terrible idea. Let's try again.
3: And is that one of the reasons why? And I think uh, what you could also have is a Christological reading of that which would explain again for maybe devout creationists both maybe from a jewish and a christian perspective why there are quote no dinosaurs on the ark
1: because Mm. all the
3: giants are wiped out that's a great question that's often a point of contention in the flooded ark story where are the dinosaurs if there were dinosaurs then
0: another thing that is of interest to me is that when i was doing my research not all the Nephilim apparently died during the flood. When Moses and the Israelites are attempting to go into the land of Israel, they send spies to check it out and say, "Oh, is this safe? Can we go in there?" And they're like, "Oh my God, there's giants. There's giants everywhere. We're going to get our butts handed to us." And so so like some of the translations are saying, like, oh, these are the Nephilim. These are the remnants of descended uh, people descended from the giants. Of the pre flood era, which is an interesting read on that. If they did survive, how? But
3: and there's also the idea that Azazel's per- perpetual lustiness for human women is part of why that scapegoating of, you know, is related to him as well.
0: So I want to go back to Asmodeus or Arashmadai, as it is in the Hebrew, Ashmedai. Specifically about the frenemy relationship between Ashmedai, king of the demons, and King Solomon and what the Talmud says they ended up building together. I think
3: of all the Jewish myths and legends, this is probably my favorite and and for a number of reasons. But essentially, Solomon had gotten word that there is a worm known as the Shamir that can cut through stone. And and bar you know and and so he conjures the demon Asmodeus or Asmodean to find out the whereabouts of this worm, and he agrees. And it's likely if you trace, and we can talk about this, the relationship that what is then called Solomonic magic will have on actual magic practice throughout the ages, as a result of this of this tale that. It's not a friendly interaction right so when when you quote conjure a demon you are binding it to your sort of will to your desire you have to threaten it it's not hey would you like to come over for a little while today right yeah it's you know you conjure it you call it you bind it you threaten it and then you demand that it gives you an answer to your question and so as sort sister of, he has to And then once Solomon has access to this worm, he uses it to help build his temple.
0: They weren't supposed to cut the stones with with steel or any metal that was also used for weaponry. So naturally, a worm. That's the answer.
3: And so it's really interesting, though, to think about this most holy of places to have been the result of an occult magical uh, function. I mean, I think that was one of the amazing things is, is the reading of the, of the Talmud over this year is seeing how much magic and supernatural is a part of uh, Jewish and rabbinical sort of understanding of the way the world works. Even though it's very clear in, you know, the, the certain texts like Leviticus that you shall not suffer a witch to live and you can't have sorcery, and you can't have divination. And there's a really interesting thing, and I'm sure we've talked about this in past episodes, but I think it's really important to continue to emphasize that you have, the, you have that sort of canonical text. And I think what the Talmud gives us insight into and what Midrash and what these myths and legends gives us insight to is that people lived their religion very differently from what is often prescribed. You know, we know that magic was considered to be something that is not something people should do, but we know that Jews made amulets and had folk remedies for things. We know that certain kabbalistic practices look very much like what might be called magical practices, even if they're only metaphorical and even if they're only intended to uh, be in sort of a meditative state for the rabbi. And so, I think it's as we talk about these things, we what's what I love so much is this idea that. It doesn't really matter in the lived expression of a religious life. You are going to seek out those rituals and those remedies for your day-to-day life that sometimes the text itself just can't answer for you, right? And so I think that it's wonderful that even though there's so much prescription against magic um, and these related practices in, in in a very strict understanding of of what what Judaism is, that the idea that this story related to the most important building in Jewish history has its origins in some of these folk tales, which include the conjuration of a demon and a magic worm.
0: What's so interesting about reading about demons in the Talmud, when Dan and I have been doing Yomi this almost, uh, almost a year, it'll be a year in January, is the practicality with which the rabbis are talking about demons in the same way they talk about the practicality of how to observe Shabbat. And, and I think the first or second day of uh, the Talmud cycle is all about how to find out if you happen to be infested by demons. And there's a whole yes. practical recipe for what to concoct and put it on the ground, and then you'll say, oh, yeah, a demon was here, yeah. That's right. But it's in, so in fact, practical. It's,
3: it's very practical, but it's also because part, one of the passages says that we all have thousands of demons around us all the time. Yeah. Right? And, and I love so the, the, the phrases, each and every one of us has a thousand demons to his left and 10,000 to his right. Um, and it says, you know, we're protected from God by this. And I also think that there's a also a... Um, I think, a very magical prayer that is said as the, at the your during your bedtime prayers where you call an angel to be in front of you, behind you, to your right, and to your left in the, in the presence of God. Uh, and this is very much something that is part of very traditional magical practices in all forms, which is where you sort of call what's called calling the directions, right? You call the spirits of the east and the west and the north and the south And I love it. Um, I I really think it's one of the most beautiful prayers, this bedtime prayer, which calls these angels to protect us. And this idea that sort of all around us, all the time is happening this cosmic battle between these angels and demons. And it's not as simple as God just erasing all the demons from existence, right? That there's like rules in place that even God has to abide by. And so you need, you need, certain prayer certain ritual certain things to accomplish and sometimes like solomon you can even get a little bit intimate with these entities as for this formula i can read at least from the translation that i have which is from um the safaria website one who seeks to know that the demons exist which is basically saying not to protect yourself from it but to prove our point (laughs) that demons exist if you don't believe us Place fine ashes around your bed, and in the morning the demon's footprints will appear like chicken footprints. This is great. One who seeks to see them, though, should take the afterbirth of a firstborn female black cat, born to a firstborn female black cat, burn it in the fire, grind it, and place it in his eyes, and he will see them. He must place the ashes in an iron tube sealed with an iron seal lest the demon steal it from him, And then seal the opening so it won't be harmed. They tell you, though, that somebody tried this and was harmed. And so they they are also at the same time recommending that you don't do it. But I just want to say, and I think it's, again, remarkable to me, that in the Talmud, of all places, is a detailed, magical recipe for performing.
0: But it makes total sense. If you if you think about how the Talmud, they're looking into the, the tiniest areas of discussion. Like, could you take a step further outside of your Shabbat boundary? Could you do this? Could you do that? Every hypothetical is discussed so naturally. It makes sense that the Talmud is about everything and nothing. And one of those everythings is demons. But I really love about yes. that directive on how to do it is you have to have the firstborn, the afterbirth of the cat, but the cat has to be like the firstborn cat who's tracing, who has the cat genealogy on lock here? How do they know which cat is the firstborn cat?
3: And But the idea of using cats and doing that kind of thing has also been a long tradition um, in stories of folk tales of witches and witchcraft and magic. So they're not none of these things that we're talking about also are, are happening in a vacuum within some um, Jewishness that is not in absolutely interacting with and aware of other traditions and their practices and their demons. And the Babylonians had a rich tradition of demons and demonology, many of which we can see the translation sort of shift a little bit to become part of Jewish legend and lore. So again, it's also important, I think what these stories tell us very much is how integrated Jews were and are in the places in which they lived what really is the relationship to these stories, to magic, to the supernatural, um, to Judaism, how much really it is part of the fabric. Now, we do know that eventually we get to a very rational idea of what Judaism should be. And then we have this later backlash from the Hasidic movement, the very, you know, the earliest forms, which are again, trying to reintegrate this, bring back in this sort of emotional, mystical sensibility. But I think, Going back and having that opportunity every year to read, not every year, but every cycle to read the Talmud and to be reminded of these stories, which then prompt us to want to go and, and look for where these tales came from and all the wonderful richness of Jewish folk life, which is, I think, in many ways, a better measure of Jewish life than the law, Does that make sense.
1: Yes. Absolutely, and I I wish people could see my face when you were explaining how like everything about the cat cats in the afterbirth to see the demons because I'm just that was shocking to say <laughs> that that's least. Like Talmud Day Two, yeah. So in for right. in for a wild ride, and it's been really interesting hearing your discussions about it as you and Dan have embarked on this journey and how it all comes full circle as we've seen right now. But speaking of demons and to go a little bit further, um, other than Ashmedai, Lilith, and Miriam's BFF, Azazel, who are some of the scariest or most important demons? I'm partial to Samael, the prince of demons and misunderstood angel of death, mostly because I'm a lefty and I'm pretty obnoxious about that. And Samael is God's left hand. Uh, turns out he's also allegedly Lilith's baby daddy. For asthma,
3: I stumbled upon a demon recently that I had not been aware like of. Like physically, or th- yes, no. uh, how can I? I don't go out.
0: Well, they could be around you. Have you tried <laughs> scattering some ashes around your bed? Come on.
3: Yeah, that's right. I have my my magic circle in the basement. I need to. Um, it's like it's like though I have it right next to my exercise bike, which I haven't been
0: using. <laughs> Exorcism <to get> <laughs> bike. <laughs> <laughs>
3: exactly. So this again, where we see these, how a simple passage becomes now an intensely detailed bit of folklore, um, begins in Proverbs 30. And there is, it says, do not slander a servant to their master, or they will curse you and you will pay for it. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth, those whose eyes are ever so haughty whose glances are so disdainful those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind the leech has two daughters give give they cry and so this begins this what is this leech with daughters yeah they cry give give and so that became the what again would become I guess you would say, folklorized into a demon known as the Aluka, which appears, I think, originally in what's called the Sefer Hasidim.
0: That sounds right.
3: And it's a it's a living creature that can change its shape. It can turn into a wolf. It can fly. It has been both um, understood as being both sort of werewolf myths, vampire myths, and it is this wonderful image of this sort of demon woman wolf creature that lets down her hair and that's what allows i think her we to mentioned fly. this last
0: time that one of the ways to incapacitate a female vampiric demon is to put her hair in a ponytail or braids
3: oh exactly. so can't fly
0: away
2: oh.
3: Oh, so just carry
0: a scrunchie wherever you go you'll be fine
3: yes so that that's my new favorite demon is the flying werewolf vampire demon.
0: that's like covering all the bases. <laughs> Really is. Yeah. So for those who may be more dismissive of folktales and midrash, which, as I've said so many times on this podcast, is just essentially biblical fan fiction, the Tanakh itself contains plenty of terror. For some, the scariest image might be Moses making thousands of Israelites drink the melted down golden calf at Mount Sinai, just totally massacring them for idol worship. Or you've got the death of the firstborn during the Exodus story. How horrifying is that? Or the Akedah when Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac like a goat. Or the creepy writing on the wall when God's disembodied hand writes a message on the wall in the book of uh, Daniel. Or when in Ezekiel, he says he's going to melt Jerusalem with everybody inside it. So my personal favorite terrifying image or concept from the Tanakh is actually also from Ezekiel, but it's his vision of the angels that surround God. And they're composed of like a million eyes. They're just like a ton of eyes. It's not like a cute baby with a like a ring, like a halo over his head. No, it's just like eyes and wings. And I think of them like Sauron eyes from Lord of the Rings, but like on meth. So, for each of you, what is the scariest visual you have come across in Jewish sacred writings? Dan, I'll start with you.
2: Well, this is now, I don't know, fourth or fifth time that Daph Yomi has come up. And In the chapter of Shabbat, which actually had a lot more digressions than a current tractate, and I've been enjoying it quite, I was enjoying Shabbat quite a bit. In Shabbat 43, the page talks about how one can move a ritually impure object from one place to another. And the way in which you are allowed to do it is if you put a ritually pure object on top of the ritually impure object, in this case, a dead body. And the sages speak of putting either a loaf of bread or a live baby on top of a dead person, and thus you can carry legally this corpse with the baby yes. on top of it to wherever you need the corpse to be.
0: But it's like either the baby or bread, like whatever's convenient.
2: Right, whatever whatever you have handy at home. No bread, baby. Don't have a baby, neighbor's baby. Doesn't matter. It doesn't say whose baby, it just says a baby. And this kind of contrast between one used to purify the other is absolutely horrifying in its imagery to me.
0: I think it's hilarious. <laughs> That's a very, very strong contender for terrifying, very practical, very like, very icky thought. Peter, what's the scariest visual for you?
3: So mine is it's subtle because it's both it's it's scary and kind of that wondrous, awful way. You know yeah. that term? It's from Ezekiel, and I also want to point out that the eyes you have to that makes them even more horrifying is that they're on wheels. Oh, the yeah. angels are shaped like wheels, yeah. and there's oh, yeah. thousands of there's eyes. There's a wheel
0: in the wheel. Like you know the that the wheel
3: and the wheel, and these are what carry God's chariot, yeah. and the seraphim. You have to remember are also saying, you know, Kadosh Kadosh Kadosh, holy, holy, holy. But they immediately incinerate, and then they come back again. So they say Kadosh Kadosh Kadosh, they blow up, they incinerate, and then they have completely like a phoenix yeah. over and over and over again. Because God so, doesn't really have um, TV,
0: so that makes sense that they're yeah, putting this on this is, type of yeah, show.
3: Exactly, and so but there's a moment in Ezekiel which I find to just be so strange and creepy um so god says to ezekiel son of man eat what is before you eat this scroll then go and speak to the house of israel so i opened my mouth and he gave me a scroll to eat and he said son of man eat this scroll i am giving you and fill your stomach with it so i ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth it's such a weird creepy beautiful strange moment that god actually gives him the scroll the word he has to eat it. He swallows it, and then he can speak God's, you know, prophecy. Because God
0: has given him acid. He put a tab of I acid. I think that's what the scroll is. It's a, it's tab. a tab
1: of acid.
3: <laughs> we solved it.
1: See, it's so funny because the three of you are speaking about something like all of the things that you just mentioned are very. They speak to a bigger picture. They speak to a scarier, overall deeper thing. And me, I'm just here, like fiery flying serpents, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, like anybody who knows me and anybody who's listened to the Indiana Jones episode of our podcast knows that I am terrified of snakes. Like my snake phobia knows no bounds. And it's only gotten worse as I've gotten older. From the book of Numbers, and the Lord sent seraph serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the Israelites died. And in the book of Isaiah, quote, out of the serpent's roots will come a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery, flying serpent. Fire snake isn't deep enough. A flying snake isn't deep enough. It's like a flying snake, not bad enough. It's fiery. No. But speaking of my least favorite thing, prior to preparing for this episode, the only sea creature I had heard of in my limited knowledge of Jewish scripture was the whale that ate Jonah. But it turns out it was actually a sea serpent named Leviton who appears several times in the Tanakh. According to the book of Job, Leviton has eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. And of course, he can't be killed for, quote, nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. So let's talk about the sea serpent and other sea monsters.
3: I mean, Leviathan is a wondrous thing to, to read about and to sort of contemplate. I think what's interesting about the Job mention is that, so Job is just put through the ringer, right? And he finally, and he has this great line where he says, though he, like, torment me, I'm going to stay true to myself. I, I know that I didn't do anything wrong. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. That's this great line. And so he trusts in God that God's going to make this right. Though he, he says, though he slay me, though I trust in him, but I will maintain my own ways before him. That's a pretty amazing thing to say. So he goes to God and basically he's going to lay it out. Why did you do this to me? It was completely unfair. And God gives, of course, the most Torah, Tanakh, God-like answer, a lot of non-answers. And God's answer to him is, can you hook Leviathan? Who are you to ask? I can hook Leviathan. Yeah,
0: he's a bazillion feet tall. Of course he can.
3: Yeah, exactly. So away with you (laughs) while I go fishing.
2: Okay, I go straight to that part of the Joker when uh, Heath Ledger's Joker says, you know, I I just do things. I'm like a dog chasing cars. I don't even know what I would do if I caught one.
3: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So this idea, though, that even there, Leviathan is used as an an example of the biggest, greatest, most dangerous thing that lives, and that God himself can hook him like a fisherman, I think, goes to, and again, goes to the way that people imagine this creature, this Leviathan, that he would be used in that example in the book of Job. Um, so there's a lot of really great things. My favorite idea about Leviathan is part of a larger sort of plan, a larger uh, apocalyptic understanding, at least in a Jewish sense. So Judaism really is never apocalyptic thinking necessarily, but sort of an end times
1: idea. I feel like Judaism has just validated my snake phobia. So thank you for that. So let's let's explore that idea a little further.
0: So we are currently recording this. It's during the holiday of Sukkot. And there's the final prayer that we say on Sukkot after we exit the sukkah structure. And it goes, May it be your will, Lord, our God and God of our forefathers, that just as I have fulfilled and dwelt in this sukkah, so may I merit in the coming year to dwell in the sukkah of the skin of the Leviathan next year in Jerusalem. So as you were saying, Peter, the, the story goes that once Mashiach, the Messiah, arrives, we will achieve utopian peace and eat the Leviathan at the celebration party for achieving utopian peace. And to make sure we're like reducing, reusing, and recycling, we're going to use the Leviathan skin to make uh, future sukkahs out of it. So, so next year's sukkah might look a whole lot different if the Messiah shows up. But this brings us to two other beasts that are destined for that end time feast in the messianic age, the huge behemoth, which is the land animal, and the ziz, which is a flying animal. So tell us more about those creatures.
3: I, so what I love also in that idea of this primal pre-creation thing is that I like to think about, I like my visual is Leviathan and the behemoth and kind of this yin-yang struggle. And then in one of the commentaries, God will ritually slaughter them. And in that ritual slaughter, um, we will feast, and we will, like you said, use Leviathan's uh, skin for the new sukkah. we will um, feast on behemoth's wonderful meat and again, this is the, this is the first meat, right <laughs> This goes back to the beginning of time so.
0: Yeah, we apologize to any vegetarians who are hoping to take part in the Messianic era. It looks like there's nothing for
2: you. I'll just have the side dishes, no problem.
3: What's interesting, though, is that in some of the versions of this that I've seen, it's not like the behemoth was often understood to be like a giant, like almost like a hippopotamus type creature. But in this story of this end time battle, it's more of an oxen or, or a bovine type creature because that's what we're accustomed to eating. And so I think, again, how these things get ported to have a little bit more practical e a eat a hippopotamus, who would eat a hippopotamus, <laughs> but a giant oxen, sure, we can all have a big feast.
0: And the ziz isn't a big deal like behemoth and uh, leviathan are, but it does show up in some uh, stories. And I'm wondering if they're just like, well, we have earth and we have water. Oh, we forgot one. We need one for the air. So now we have this flying creature that's not quite the same, but, you know, we wanted to cover all of our bases.
3: Yes, indeed. And what happens to this creature, do you know?
0: I'm pretty sure we eat that
2: one too. Oh, okay. Peter, we cannot leave a conversation about Jewish horror ideas without talking about horror movies. As you know, that is my context for all of this, as I I already mentioned one. In addition to reading the Talmud and listening to heavy metal, I do like watching movies. And throughout the years, I have watched several, maybe not entirely Jewish horror movies, but horror movies with some... Jewish adjacent stuff in them. Recent examples would be the fairly terrible Golem that we uh, reviewed a 2018 Israeli film. World War Z's quite excellent scene in Jerusalem where the monsters, the fast zombies are scaling a wall, not the wall, but a wall. And then there's the possession with our old friend, Modest Yahoo. It was just okay, I got to say. Is there a definitive Jewish monster movie? Has it not yet been made? And if you were going to make it, yeah, I think it's a really
3: good question. I don't think that that monster movie has been made. I think what we have, though, and it's, again, is really important to think about, is the ways in which all films—not all, but many films that feature occult or supernatural elements—are often drawing from this long trajectory of how we get to back to sort of these very old Jewish stories. So let's take that film, *Hereditary*.
2: Okay, *Hereditary* is a very was very you know well-received sort of of the new
3: horror films. And it has to do with this one particular demon that there is a cult around. And that demon, that demon known as Paimon, appears in a book, a medieval, what's called a medieval grimoire called the Goetia, G-O-E-T-I-A, or the Lesser Key of Solomon. And here's that name Solomon again, which is a basically a list of all the demons that Solomon would have encountered in his magical conjurations. Um, and it describes them and tells you sort of what kingdoms of, of thought and ideas they, um, they rule and there's sort of a hierarchy of them. And Paimon is one of them. And, but again, that idea of this, of this book, the lesser key of the Solomon. And there's also that book, the key of Solomon, the king, which I think we've talked about in the past, which is supposedly the, the, the kinds of techniques that Solomon would have used to conjure Asmodeus to learn about the worms, whereabouts to build his temple, right? So this tradition of medieval magical grimoires, which themselves have had a huge influence on Western ceremonial magic and um, uh, other occult sort of thinking and practices goes, I I think is amazing that it goes back to this story of, of this conjuration of Asmodeus to, to find out where the worm is. So, the movie Hereditary would not have existed or if it not for this long tradition and tales going all the way back to our friend Solomon and his worm. So I think if we, and, and the movie Dark Song I mentioned, similarly does this, right? So I think if we look at all these these attempts to sort of do horror based on the occult and the supernatural, we're really locked in, in many ways, to Jewish Magic and and, and mythologies and, and and fables, as it were, around these things. But if you're asking me, the movie I would want to make, I would like to see a, I would like to see a Moby Dick type horror film done with Leviathan as the yes, creature.
0: Yes, I that love that. It?
3: So you have this sort of mad rabbi magician who is seeking to to catch and capture Leviathan to bring in sort of the end times, right? And yeah, so. I think there's a movie for us to work on together.
0: Don't steal that idea, anybody who's out there listening. <laughs> this is our, this is Peter's idea. If they ever make this movie, yeah, copyright. copyright Peter. Right here. I'm going to write it down. Well, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan and Ashley, for joining me on this episode and talking all these scary, scary things.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. You're my favorite. Oh, I'm, I I just love this so much. I was so thrilled that you asked
0: me. Yes, that. right. If we, so, plague, if we get through this we get through this year. Yes. Baruch Hashem, if we exactly. get through this plague, Azazel, <sighs> I'll ask you too. Azazel, yes. help us get through this plague. Yes, because I now just ask demons for help too. Maybe they can help us out.
3: Well, let's just hope that this is not the year that Behemoth and Leviathan yes. destroy each other.
0: That definitely is the way 2020 ends on that <laughs> note. <laughs> yeah. yes. At
3: least we'll have some good kosher (laughs) yes we will
0: that's right (laughs) (laughs) thank you everybody out there for listening if you like what you heard be sure to rate and review the vibe of the tribe wherever you listen to podcasts thanks as always to our editor Jesse stay safe wear a mask as it protects from COVID-19 and also the evil eye